We read the whole chapter, but we're going to focus on the first verse of the first chapter this morning. Introductory message. The book of Ruth, as we said, uh, is starting a new series, and we're calling it Finding Hope in a Disappointing World. Now, the book of Ruth, how many of you are familiar with the book of Ruth? All right, most of you. How many have actually read through the whole book before? Several of you. Let me challenge you to do it again. In fact, to do it several times in the next coming weeks as we go through the series so that you can familiarize yourself with the story. The book of Ruth is, if you haven't figured this out by now, it's in the Old Testament. It comes right after the book of Judges and right before the book of 1 Samuel. Now, nobody's really for sure who the author is of the book of Ruth. By the way, it's not Ruth. All right, Ruth did not write the book of Ruth. Most people think that perhaps first, uh, first Samuel, Samuel himself wrote the book of Ruth, but we're not for sure on that. Ruth is a small book. It's only four chapters, 85 verses in all. Uh, but it's, uh, even though it's a small book, it is an amazing book about God redeeming Ruth in order, get this, to accomplish his greater purpose of redeeming people like you and I. That's what the book of Ruth is all about. God redeeming Ruth. Why? So that God would fulfill his greater purpose, his greater mission of redeeming the whole world through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the book of Ruth is really the gospel in miniature. And we're going to discover that as we go through this series here. As we will see in the weeks to come. Most people think the main characters of the story are Ruth, Boaz. Naomi. But the main character, the real hero in this story is not those characters. The real hero in main character is God himself. As he works through these human characters to advance his purpose of redeeming the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, here's a question. I wonder, how many of you have really been amazed in your life? I mean, have you ever seen something, perhaps on TV, or maybe you were out and about and you saw it on the highway or just whatever, or have you ever read something that where you just kind of stopped and you said, wow, that's amazing. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but I just want to preface this. You know, if you think about not everything amazing is good. There are sometimes amazing things can be good, and sometimes they can be bad. So we have good amazing, and then there's also bad amazing. For example, the, do you realize the average cost of rehabilitating a seal after the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which was way back in Alaska, you realize, you know what the average cost of rehabilitating a seal was back then? $80,000. The average cost. At a special ceremony, two of the most expensively saved animals were released back into the wild amid cheers and applause from all these people that were there to see it. One minute later, they were eaten by a killer whale. That's bad, amazing. That was not a good day for those two seals. How about this one? A woman came home to find her husband in the kitchen shaking frantically with what looked like a wire running from his waist towards the electric skillet. Intending to jolt him away from the deadly current, she whacked him with a two-by-four, laying by the back door, breaking his arm in two places. Till that moment, he had been happily listening to his iPod. (laughs) That's 
a bad day. That's bad amazing. Here's another one. Another story. And by the way, all true stories. Two animal rights protesters were protesting at the cruelty of sending pigs to a slaughterhouse in Bonn, Germany. Suddenly, the pigs, all 2,000 of them, escaped through a broken fence and started a stampede, trampling the two hapless protesters to death. Again, that's bad, amazing. Or how about this story? A terrorist didn't pay enough postage on a letter bomb. It came back with return to sender stamped on it. And forgetting it was a bomb, he opened it and blew himself up. Now that's amazing. A bad kind of amazing, though. So we have bad amazing, and we have good amazing. Now let me just say, the book of Ruth is not bad amazing. The book of Ruth is good amazing. In the story of Ruth, anytime you start talking about the redeeming grace of God, it's what? Amazing. It's good amazing. And nowhere in the Bible is God's redeeming grace more clearly seen than in the book of Ruth. This story, most people think it's just a love story. Guys, you know, let me just tell you up front, you know, we don't want to watch a chick flick, do we? In the book of Ruth, sometimes we, you know, ah, it's just a chick flick in a Bible form, in a chapter. The book of Ruth is not like that. Yes, it's a love story, but it's so much more than that. I'm telling you, this is an awesome book. And it's the story of God bringing people from sorrow to joy, from tragedy to triumph, from bitterness to blessedness, from loneliness to love, as they turn to God in faith. It's an amazing story about finding hope in a disappointing world as it begins with a funeral, and yes, it ends with a wedding. Let me give you an overview of the book of Ruth real quickly here. And this overview is adapted from Warren Wearsby's uh, commentary. And this is just a brief overview, so we have an idea of what we're talking about here as we go through this book of Ruth. But in the first chapter, he defines it as the weeping chapter. It's the chapter of broken hearts, as it tells the story of sorrow. And what you see in this first chapter, as Kirk read for us, is these women are just weeping. It's nothing but sorrow. Naomi's weeping. Orpah's weeping. Ruth is weeping. But what we also see is that Ruth has a faith that is determined. She's not about to give in and quit. And then we come to chapter 2, and it's described as the working chapter. It's the chapter of the comforted heart in which Ruth finds herself working in Boaz's field. And it's while working diligently there that she experiences comfort and peace and contentment. And then we come to chapter 3 and we find Ruth waiting. And she is waiting on God as she waits on Boaz to redeem her. And through waiting, Ruth finds assurance that Boaz will serve her in his capacity as a kinsman redeemer. And in in doing so, she demonstrates this faith that is ultimately dependent on God himself. And then finally, chapter 4 is the wedding chapter. And it's a chapter in which the hearts are filled with joy. And there's hope and there's satisfaction as Ruth's faith produces a deliverance through her marriage to Boaz. And so that's kind of the book of Ruth in in overview, in summary form. And so the book of Ruth, if you can think about it this way, it moves. And it, it moves this way from sorrow to service to submission to satisfaction. 
And if you think about those four concepts right there, this is precisely the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. Just think about this with me. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us in a world of sin and sorrow. A world of broken hearts, broken dreams, and broken promises, and ultimately broken lives, shattered lives. And the gospel that finds us in the midst of all this sin and sorrow and heartache, it brings us at last to the place of submission before Christ, and then ultimately satisfaction in Christ. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have often call it what? It's what kind of news? It's good news. But if we have not experienced that great movement of God's grace in our lives, then we have missed the greatest thing in all the world. Folks, listen to me. Until Jesus Christ fills the void in our hearts, there will always be sorrow and heartache. But when we trust Christ as our Savior and Lord, He can move us from sorrow to satisfaction in spite of the circumstances that are going on around us. That's what we're going to begin to learn even in this first message this morning. And as we will see, that is exactly the movement and message of the book of Ruth. This book shows us that it's possible to move in our lives even today from sorrow to satisfaction, from tears to rejoicing, from bitterness to blessedness, from emptiness to fullness in life. This amazing story shows us that it really is possible to find hope in a disappointing world. And who here doesn't need a little hope? Who of us here this morning doesn't need some tangible hope in our lives? Listen, all of us do. As people living in a selfish and sin-filled world, None of us are immune to life's hardships and disappointments. We live in a world that tests the very sincerity of our faith. And so the book of Ruth is for people who may be feeling disappointed in life right now. It is for people who may be feeling like God has abandoned you, even in your life today. And perhaps you can identify, as Kirk read the first chapter for us, you can identify with with this character named Naomi and all her suffering in life and even bitterness towards God. Perhaps you're here today and you might say, man, I am in dark days in my life. I need some hope. I'm down and discouraged and defeated and I'm ready to just throw in the towel because life is so hard that I don't think I can take it anymore. Listen, if that's you, can I throw out Just a little challenge to you. Can I ask you, don't throw in the towel on God in your faith just yet. My challenge to you is this, is to go through this study of the book of Ruth with me. And begin to ask God to speak to your heart. Let God show you that it really is possible to find hope in a disappointing world, regardless of what is going on around you. Which brings us to the theme of the book of Ruth. Are you ready for it? This theme runs throughout every chapter. And it's so amazing and yet so powerful. Here it is. 
to find hope in a disappointing world, turn to God. Why? Because He is at work in the worst of times. That's the whole theme. In fact, this idea of turn to God, you may have caught it in the first chapter because it especially comes out in chapter 1 where you have these words, turn, return, go back, brought back. And they're all basically the same Hebrew word. And so this book is all about people turning to God, turning back to God, returning to God. Why? Because they've turned away from God or they've kind of just drifted away from Him. And in their circumstances of life, they are disappointed. And so God allows these things to come into their life so that they will now be brought back to God. So they will turn to Him to find hope. Why? Because God is always at work even in the worst of times. Even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when you don't see it work, him working. Charles Dickens begins his classic book, A Tale of Two Cities, with the well-known words, it was the... And it was the... The book of Ruth opens with a description of the times in which this story takes place. And let me tell you, it was not the best of times. It was one of the worst and darkest times in Israel's history. Look again how the first verse opens. Ruth 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now, don't miss that very first phrase. And I lost my speaker here. Don't miss the very first phrase. It says, now it came to pass. This phrase here, God, what he's doing is he immediately sets the stage for everything that happens in the book of Ruth. And by the way, this phrase sets the stage for everything that happens in our life even today. Now it came to pass. I love that phrase. Now it came to pass. That phrase is amazing. You say, well, what's the big deal about that phrase? What's that phrase mean? Well, notice it. It means nothing in life happens by accident. Are you excited about that? Nothing in life happens by accident. Listen, this means the events in the book of Ruth, especially the famine, didn't happen by accident. Why? Because there are no accidents in this world. And there are no accidents in your life here today. This means the loss of your job is not by accident. This means the life-threatening cancer in your body is not by accident. This means the death of your spouse is not by accident. This means the miscarriage of your baby is not by accident. This means the drunk driver who hit you is not by accident. This means the abandonment of your father in your past is not by accident. Listen, this means the move to this city is not by accident. I see Jordan and Nikki back there. They had a departure date for the Philippines in August. This means for them that their departure date now has been delayed. Is not by accident. This means that it's not by accident that you and I are here today. Nothing happens by accident. You say, well, why is that? Look at it here. Because what happens in life, both the good 
and the bad is brought to pass by the hand of God according to the will of God for the glory of God. You know what that means? It means what happens around us and to us. Both the good and the bad is brought to pass, let me say it again, by the hand of God according to the will of God for the glory of God. Look what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his, that is, God's glory. So this phrase, now it came to pass. Let me tell you, it lets us know from the very beginning that God is a sovereign God. He is not just aloof in heaven, not knowing and not taking an interest in what's going on in this world and in our lives. He is a sovereign God. And He is at work in this world. He's at work in your life, even in the worst of times, to accomplish His purposes. So here's the question. As we look at this first verse, and not even the whole verse, just the first sentence here, what made this the worst of times as the book of Ruth begins? Why was this the worst of times? What was making it that way? Well, notice there were two things that were happening when the book of Ruth takes place. Number one, there was a spiritual famine in the days when the judges ruled. There was a spiritual famine going on. That phrase, the days when the judges ruled. That was a 400-year period after Israel had already entered the promised land, but before there were any kings in Israel. And so instead, what God would do, he would send judges to rule and to lead his people, the Israelites, to declare the war to God to them and to declare the will of God to his people. And these judges, let me tell you, they started out squeaky clean as God's servants. The first few judges, they were good. They were honorable men. They weren't perfect by any means, because we know people like Gideon. He was one of the first ones. Othanel, Gideon was scared to death to do God's will. So they weren't perfect, but they were, they were God's servants, and they sought to, to do God's work. But by the time you get to the very last judge, and do you know who the last judge was in the book of Judges? Samson. And we all know about Samson. They were more interested in satisfying their own sinful and selfish desires than serving God. And of course, these judges were the leaders of God's people, and God's people just followed in the footsteps of these judges in compromise and in sin and in selfishness. And so this whole period of the judges, and if you want to learn about the period of the judges, all you got to do is read what book? The book of Judges, which tells us all about the time frame in which the book of Ruth is set in. And so this whole period of the Judges has one great characteristic, and it's found in the very last verse of Judges, verses 21 and 25. Notice what it says. In those days, 
there was no king in Israel. In other words, we could also rephrase that to say, in those days when the judges ruled, in those days when the judges ruled and there was no king in Israel, what was the landscape of the nation of Israel? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, the reason there was a spiritual famine in the days when the judges ruled is because everyone started doing what was right in his own eyes instead of doing what was right in God's eyes. And the result of this self-reliance and independence from God was disastrous. When you read the book of Judges, what you find is time and again, God would deliver his people into the hands of their enemies. And why would God do that? To teach them a lesson. To teach them that no person can live independently from God and prosper. And so God would deliver his people into the hands of their enemies and bring them to a place of repentance and return to himself. And so what would happen naturally, when they would be oppressed, God's people, when the enemies would come down upon them and attack them and they would be suffering, what would they do? All of a sudden then, they would turn to God, they would cry out for help. And God in His mercy and His grace would answer their cries by sending a judge to deliver them. But no sooner than they were delivered, than they were back to their rebellious old ways of disobeying God and living independently from God. Now, let me just say here for a moment, that the problem of the people of Israel here was not that they didn't have God's Word. Remember our Ten Commandments series? They had the Ten Commandments. They had God's law already given to them through Moses. So God's people here knew what God's Word was. They knew how to live. Remember, we in our series on the Ten Commandments, we learned that the Ten Commandments were God's blueprint for behavior and blessings in life. And so the problem for the people of Israel at the time of the judges when they ruled was not that they didn't know what God wanted for them. It was not that they didn't have God's Word. The problem was they didn't obey God's Word. They didn't pay attention to God's messengers who delivered it. Instead, everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. God said one thing, but the people did another thing. The people simply did what they wanted, and God was left out of the equation. And what was true of the days when the judges ruled, folks, listen, is still true today. Listen, Judges 21-25 is a summary of our own generation and nation today. Can I, can I throw out a question to us here? Is this verse, Judges 21-25, is that by chance a summary of your life, even now? When, when you look in the mirror, and if you're honest with God, does that summarize you? Are you characterized more by doing what is right in your own eyes instead of doing what is right in God's eyes? So one reason why it was the worst of times is because there was this spiritual famine in the days when the judges ruled. And this spiritual famine led to the next reason why it was the worst of times. Number two, there was a physical famine. 
There was a literal famine going on in the land of Judah. Verse 1 tells us that it was in the days when the judges ruled that God sent a famine in the land of Judah. This means the book of Ruth probably took place during the days of Gideon when the Midianites prevailed and destroyed the increase of the earth if you go to Judges chapter 6 and read all about it. In other words, here's what you could do. I don't... I'm not saying do this, but if you took your Bible and ripped out the book of Ruth, just ripped it out of your pages, you could then put it in the book, the book of Judges, right in the middle of it, or even around Judges 6. And so what you have is that during the whole book of Judges, God is giving us this little glimpse through the book of Ju- Ruth that's set in the context of Judges that not all hope is lost. He's showing us, hey, I'm still at work. My plan is not going to be stopped of redeeming this world. Because when you read through the book of Judges, you're like, whoa, man, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. Where's God in the middle of all this? He's nowhere to be found. And, and, and then you come to the book of Ruth, and God says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm still working my plan. I'm still accomplishing my mission of redeeming this world, even in the worst of times. I told you this book is cool. This book is awesome. Most of us here today, we're strangers to this whole idea of a famine. How many are thankful for that? <laughs> well, I know I am. So how can a famine have spiritual significance? Well, I believe we can experience a famine when we live independently from God. Listen to me. The moment we begin to move away from the path of God's truth and the path of God's will, we are on the road to starving our souls. This is the whole point God is making here for us in verse 1. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and that was when... The famine came, and it is also why the famine came. So there was a physical famine in the land of Judah as a result of a spiritual famine in the days when the judges ruled. Now think about this for a moment, because this is just, the irony in this book is amazing too. There was a famine in what land? Judah. But what was it known as in the book of Exodus? The promised land. And when you go into Exodus and into Numbers and you read about this land of Canaan, the land of Judah, that God had promised to the people of Israel, what did he call it? He tend, Moses sent 12 spies or 10 spies into the land to spy out. And what do they come back saying? Man, it is a land of milk and honey. The same land here. So isn't it strange that there's a famine in the promised land, a land that once flowed with milk and honey was now parched and empty. And then the rest of verse 1 tells us that this famine even hit a little town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Now how strange that there would be a famine in a town called Bethlehem. Why would that be so strange? Well, notice the irony of Bethlehem's name. Bethlehem means the house of bread. That's what the name means. And yet, there was no bread to be found in the house of bread. Bethlehem 
was a place where God blessed his people. And ultimately, this was the place, get this, where the bread of life was to come when Jesus was born into this world. And yet, here is the house of bread lacking bread. Which means the house of bread could no longer provide bread for its people. And the irony here reminds us that the true source of our daily bread, listen to me, goes way beyond our incomes and our jobs. It goes way beyond our economy and our government. Listen, the true source of our daily bread is God Himself. God is the one who provides for our needs. This is why we put our trust in Him. So, what was the purpose, though, of this famine? Why was there this famine going on? Well, I think there's two reasons that we can gather together from the rest of Scriptures here. Notice that perhaps the famine was a sign of God's judgment. That something was wrong spiritually in the land of Judah. Now, it's important to remember that God had told His people over and over and over and over again, Kind of like us as parents with our kids. We remind them over and over again. And God had told His people over and over again that wonderful blessings would come their way if they were faithful to Him. And He also told them that, oh man, terrible judgments would result if they were unfaithful to Him. And a famine was simply one way by which God would judge his people for their disobedience and unfaithfulness. In fact, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and you can read about all these blessings and judgments and details. What I want us to understand is that now in the days when the judges ruled, in the days when the people did right in their own eyes, get this, God's word was coming true. That shouldn't surprise any of us, should it? God's word was coming true. God was fulfilling His promise to His people here. There was a famine. The fields were bare and the barns were empty. The house of bread was now without bread. God had turned on the warning light. The famine was a clear signal to His people that something was drastically wrong spiritually. So one reason why there was a famine was perhaps it was a sign of God's judgment. Hey, something's wrong here with your life spiritually. Another reason why, perhaps the famine was a wake-up call to get things right spiritually. Perhaps this famine was a trumpet sound to get things right with God and to do so now. God's judgment was the wake-up call to repent and to return to Him. And the reason I say this is because of what Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17 says. God here comes to His people and He warns them when He says, Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit. That's famine. And you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So part of the purpose of this famine was a a wake-up call to get things right with God. It was the voice of God sounding the alarm and calling His people to repent and return to Him. So that's the context in which the book of Ruth is set. 
And let me tell you, it was the worst of times. We look around our world today and we think it's the worst of times. Let me tell you, this was the worst of times. So here's the question. What do we learn from all this? Because so far you've given me nothing but bad news. I mean, is there any hope to be found in the worst of times? Because the reality is, some of you here, when you look at your life, it's the worst of times. So is there any hope to be found? What lessons can we take away from this opening verse of Ruth? Let me offer you two lessons in which to go home with this morning. Number one, the first lesson is this. God is at work in the worst of times. God is at work in the worst of times. I'll be the first to admit, it is so easy to look around our world and even our lives. It's so easy to watch the national news, the local news, read the news on the internet, whatever, look at your neighborhood, look at your coworkers, and to think to yourself, Where's God? It seems like He's nowhere to be found. But the book of Ruth comes to us and it reminds us that God is at work even in the worst of times. Yes, in the days when the judges ruled, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and the result was there was famine in the land. And what is amazing to me and this just blows me away, is that there is still a nation called Israel. Because the whole book of Judges presents a people rotting at the core spiritually. But for all the sin and judgment in the book of Judges, grace also abounds. And that is even more amazing. Especially when you consider how often God intervened on Israel's behalf in spite of what it deserved. I mean, why would God do that for his people? Why, why would God intervene on their behalf? After they rebelled against him, disobeyed him, he then rescues them, and they, they fall back and do the same thing again. Why, why would God show so much grace to his people here? We could kind of ask the question this way. Why would God show, much, show so much grace to me? Why would He show so much grace to you? Well, the reason why God showed so much grace here in the book of Judges and through the people of Ruth is because God had a mission for His people to be a channel of redemptive blessing to the whole world. Listen to me. God was going to accomplish His purpose of providing redemption for people like us today through His Son Jesus, and nothing was going to stop Him. Not even His own rebellious people. Nothing was going to get in the way of accomplishing His mission. You don't believe me? All you got to do is go way over to the last verse of the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, verse 22 tells us that the child born to Ruth and Boaz during this worst of times is Obed. <laughs> like, Obed, what kind of name is that? Who's Obed? What's the big deal about Obed? 
Well, Obed becomes the father of Jesse. And Jesse becomes the father of who? King David. Who led Israel to her greatest times of glory. And ultimately, God's promise of redemption would be fulfilled years later through David's family tree when Jesus is born. And so the book of Ruth gives us hope when all hope seems lost. Just when you think God has forgotten you, just when you think He's even turned away from me and He's abandoned you, the truth is that God is at work in your life to accomplish His mission, His purposes for His glory. So the first lesson we walk away here this morning is, let me tell you, God is at work in the worst of times. Is that not something to get excited about? Listen, tomorrow when you go to work and you turn on the morning news before you jot out or whatever, just remember, God is at work in the worst of times. When you look at your life and you think, man, my life stinks, I'm in misery. God is at work in your life. And He wants to do something in your life. He wants to move you from sorrow to satisfaction. He wants to move you from emptiness to fullness. Hang with us through the book of Ruth and you'll see how it happens. The second lesson, which tells us how here, is turn to God in the worst of times. Turn to God. Why? Because God is at work. The book of Ruth is all about God's promises. It's a book that reminds us that once God makes a promise, He will keep that promise. And let me tell you, at the heart of God's promise here is the gospel. It's salvation to mankind. God can save, God does save, and He will save every person who comes to Him. That's His promise. So turn to Him and trust Him with your life. The book of Ruth is also all about God's provision. All through the book of Ruth, we see God providing food when there is no food. We see Him providing shelter when there is no shelter. We see Him providing hope when there is no hope. We see Him providing blessing when there is no blessing. The book of Ruth teaches us that God is the one who supplies all our needs. So turn to God in your need of salvation and hope and just the necessities of life. Because God is at work in the worst of times. Now let me ask you. Where are you at right now in your own life? Is it the worst of times? One reason why it may be the worst of times in your life is because you're experiencing a famine in your soul. A spiritual famine. And your soul is starving to death. And God has brought about the worst of times in your life so that you would turn to Him and return to Him. And to turn to Him in faith and trust. So I ask, are you experiencing a famine in your life and soul? If that's you today, turn to God. Is your life summarized by doing what is right in your own eyes? Turn to God and repent. Listen, 
His grace is big enough to handle it. He has a plan for you. And a hope for you in this disappointing world of ours. But the answer is to turn to him. With your heads bowed. And as the praise team comes, listen, I don't know where you are spiritually in your life. The people who you think are spiritual sometimes are the ones who are starving spiritually. And the people you think that are starving, man, they are so satisfied in Jesus Christ. And so my job here is not to try to analyze where you're at spiritually, but for you to open up your heart to God and let God speak to you and to show you. This is our response time. It's the time to respond to the message of God, His words, and to take care of business with God. To come to Him, if need be, for repentance and confession of sin and to seek His forgiveness and to turn to Him in faith and hope and trust so that you can begin to find hope in Him. As the praise team sings, I invite you to respond right where you're at, right where you're sitting.